Hey guys, welcome to Valley Church. Good to see you all. Anyone feeling tired right now? Anyone feeling warm? Is it warm in here? Feels good? Okay. Good nap. It is. Not that Kevin has ever asked for anyone's permission, but it is okay to to just rest in church. If this is a place where you can just be relaxed, uh, that's great. That's fine. I have no problem with that. Except for Kevin. You need to pay, focus and pay attention. Um, if we haven't met before, my name's Michael. Um, we are working our way through the book of Matthew, and we're plugging away. Um, we're going to be in chapter 22 tonight, if you want to open your Bibles there. Um, if you've been around church for a while, especially maybe Valley Church for a while, Matthew... Um, it's very easy for it to just become another gospel. Like one of the four versions of the stories we have about how Jesus died for us, each of them having an extended introduction about the stuff he did before he died, and then a happy ending where he doesn't stay dead. Um, but it is so much more than that, and I want to remind us of a few things to uh, maybe kind of round out how we think about what a gospel is, um, how we think about this book in particular. If you've been here for a number of the messages in Matthew, then you prop, some of it will be repeat, but it's stuff that's worth um, repeating um, to help kind of orient ourselves around the whole book of Matthew, because I feel like tonight's passage needs a little bit of summary of like what's come before it. This passage is kind of like the end of a little section almost, and so we're going to do a lot of introduction and summary kind of about what Matthew is, what this book is, and then we'll get into our passage, which is rather short. Um, so Matthew is the author, if you didn't know, uh, of this book. He was a disciple of Jesus, and he wrote this, what's really like a, just a first century biography about Jesus. Um, in the original language, the book is called the Euangelion Kata Matthion. It's the gospel according to Matthew. That word, euangelion, which we translate gospel, um, or sometimes we say is good news, it's kind of like an announcement or a proclamation but of a particular kind. And I thought of a modern example that captures what euangelion is, and after I share this example, you might have less respect for me, and that's okay. Um, how many of you have seen or heard of the musical Wicked? Yes, okay. Um, so it is an origin story of, of sorts to The Wizard of Oz. I don't know if it's considered canon or not. If you know the answer to that question, you should come tell me. Um, it should be, because it's amazing. Anyways, at the beginning of the musical, I'm not going to spoil anything, I promise. At the beginning of the musical, um, the, it is essentially like a flash forward to the end, and they are celebrating the death of the Wicked Witch of the West. That's like the premise of the, the beginning. I'm not spoiling it. Um, celebrating the death of the Wicked Witch of the West, also known as Alphaba. And I'm just going to uh, share with you the lyrics to the beginning of that opening song. I'm not going to sing it, don't worry. <laughs> Good news. She's dead. The witch of the West is dead. You can sing it in your head if you know it. That's fine. The wickedest witch there ever was, the enemy of all of us here in Oz, is dead. Good news, good news. Look, it's Galinda. Let us be glad. Let us be grateful. Let us rejoiceify that goodness could subdue the wicked workings of you-know-who. That's Alphaba, not Voldemort. Isn't it nice to know that good will conquer evil? We say Voldemort's name now. We're not afraid. Um... That is the gospel, a, a gospel, a type of euangelion, of good news, in a song. It's a proclamation that something has happened and their world will never be the same. Everything has changed. Goodness has subdued the wicked. Good has won and we're safe now that they've conquered evil. 
again, the opening number is deceptive about what the rest of the musical is about. So it's about Alphaba. It's fine. You can go watch it, watch it or listen to it, and it's wonderful. Um, so when Matthew is writing the good news, when his, this type of work is called a euangelion, it is a proclamation about Jesus and about what it means that Jesus has arrived. So this book, and really each of them in their own way, are a story about how something has happened, something that has fundamentally changed the world as we know it. Um, so you can forget everything you know about the world and how it works and who runs the show because Jesus has arrived. He's here, and it's the good news. So this type of announcement, a euangelion, um, would be used around the time of Jesus and, and well before him too, like when a king had conquered some people or land and he would maybe like send some herald out to his new subjects saying, good news, we've defeated your old terrible king and now you belong to us. So your world as you knew it is gone and it's gonna be so much better now that that old terrible king is gone and I'm here to take care of you. That's kind of like a, what a euangelion is. And so Jesus went around preaching the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And so the good news, according to Matthew and, and Jesus, is that in Jesus, God has arrived to humanity to establish um, his kingdom and rescue his people. The implication is that this, this person bringing the good news, Jesus, would wipe out their enemies, or he has, or he was going to. Um, and so if we pair that kind of understanding of what a, what a gospel is, what that word means, with Israel's beliefs about someone called Messiah. It will help round out what we think about this book and our passage in particular. Israel expected with this Messiah that they would be immediately, or at least like imminently, delivered from their oppressors, that this Messiah who was arriving was going to rescue them, that he would be like a military slash political leader. So to an Israelite at the time of Jesus, someone says Messiah is here, they likely think something like our king is here, like let's grab our swords, let's join him and overthrow Rome. Um, and they also believe that the Messiah would be from the line of David. We'll talk about that a little bit more, but that this guy, the Messiah, would be from David's family, a descendant of David, a kingly royal line. So he'd be a military leader with like the best epic royal pedigree. Now, Matthew made sure um, at the beginning of this book to show us um, that Jesus was from the line of David. That's like what the very beginning, the genealogy is about. Um, and he's shown us throughout the whole book, throughout the gospel with various people calling him the son of David. Um, while Matthew has made it clear, um, he didn't seem like the Messiah to the people that were around at the time. It, it took people a while to see who he really was. Jesus was raised in a town that no one cared about. Um, he was likely some kind of stonemason or something, not a prince um, sitting in the palace. He wasn't, it didn't seem to be um, a learned, important religious person like the Pharisees or the Sadducees were. He had no political power or influence. He was humble. He spent time with sinners and people that would have frustrated the Pharisees and the social elite. One of his followers was like a sellout extortionist um, on, for Rome, for their enemies. And so he didn't seem like this kingly line of David Messiah. He didn't start a military revolution like they thought and hoped the Messiah would. 
he did all sorts of other amazing things that we read and we're like, well, of course that's what the Messiah did. But he healed people and he kind of fought back um, against Satan and, and demons. And so it showed us, at least it showed the people then, that Jesus was at least some kind of prophet, miracle worker from God, but his identity as the Messiah was cloudy to many people. Even when it became clear to his disciples, Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah, um, they still think that means that soon we're gonna like take up the fight to Rome, right? That's what we're gonna go do is, is free ourselves. And so then they get crushed and confused and sad when Jesus says, actually, what it means for me to be the Messiah is that I'm going to lay down my life. I'm actually gonna be handed over to the religious leaders and they'll murder me. And so we read the gospel and maybe kind of... Uh, take for granted how the story played out. We have the whole thing in front of us. We, see, we know what's happened. We have the moments where Matthew is kind of spelled out with you know, Old Testament scripture fulfillments about how Jesus has fulfilled all these things. And we're like, well, yeah, of course he's the Messiah. But it would have been harder for people to see um, back then. And even so, he spoke in all these parables and in language that kind of made people have to lean in and listen and be humble like children. And there was a particular group of people who didn't see, didn't want to see, and hard-heartedly rejected that uh, Jesus was the Messiah, and that's the Pharisees, really the religious elite in general, but the Pharisees in particular. They should have seen that he was. They should have known the signs and seen it uh, first before anyone, and they should have led people to the Messiah like John the Baptist did, but they did the opposite. They opposed Jesus. They fought with him. They tried to get people to stop listening to him and stop following him. So eventually, not long before our passage, Jesus arrives like in their home field, their territory in Jerusalem. And as he enters the city, all these people are praising him. They're waving palm branches like they would if a military leader arrived in a city and was like proclaiming his victory about what he had done, all of his you know, military conquests. He arrives um, in the city, the people are praising him, waving palm branches. Um, and ironically, Jesus is on a donkey. He's not on this like epic war horse that he took into battle, but he's on this humble donkey. Um, and these people are crying out, Hosanna, which means save us. Hosanna to the son of David is what they're crying out to him. Jesus then proceeds to totally like undo and dismantle the religious system and authority of the Pharisees. He like rages against their fruitless and uh, fruitlessness and injustice and hypocrisy in the temple. He calls out the Pharisees for the inability to see the arrival of him, of their Messiah. And then he tells them that the kingdom of God, which they sort of like appeared to kind of hold the keys to, they were kind of the gatekeepers and the power players and the religious circle. And Jesus is like, this is not yours anymore. I'm taking the kingdom from you and I'm offering it to the people who are humble, who are willing to accept Jesus and believe in him, people like sinners and uh, Gentiles. The Pharisees don't like this and so they keep doing what they've been doing and they're trying to get Jesus canceled. They're trying to um, get him out of the picture. And so in this chapter that we have been in, in chapter 22, they've been asking questions hoping not just to like stump Jesus so that they feel smart and Jesus looks dumb, but they're hoping to prove him to be, a, to be a fraud or to get him in trouble with Rome or something. It doesn't work. Um, and now Jesus asks them a question. And I don't think that he's trying to like get back at them, make them feel stupid. I think it's a question about the identity of the Messiah. 
um, a question that, when answered, will reveal what they think about the Messiah. And so Matthew portrays this passage that we're about to read um, as Jesus' final interaction with the Pharisees um, before they arrest him and um, make it so that he is executed. He'll have a lot to say about the Pharisees after this passage, um, but this is like his final in-person interaction with them, and so it's, I think it's kind of important. And I think Jesus is trying to draw the Pharisees in one last time to see who he is. Um, he's trying to draw them in one last time to see who he is. And I, I wonder if maybe for us reading it today, if that's exactly what Jesus wants us to do as well to draw us in so that we can see him as the Messiah. And so, with that long introduction, let's read chapter 22, verses 41 through 46. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord. For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you um, help us understand these words? Not so that we um, feel smart or check something off a list, but because we believe that we can find you here, because your voice is here, and your voice and your words do something in us, in your people. Your sheep know your voice, and we're listening now. So illuminate these words to do something in our lives, to help us become more like Jesus, Pray this in your name, amen. So I don't know about you, I think it's kind of a strange passage, um, or at least um, we're like, okay, cool, Jesus stumped them. That's, maybe, that's kind of maybe the face value, you're like, oh yeah, cool, Jesus is smart, and he, he got him back. They tried to get him, didn't work, and then he got them. But um, after I'd finished studying it, I told my wife, I was like, I feel like I understand the logic and what Matthew is doing with the story but I don't know that I know like what the Spirit of God wants to do with it like in the church today. Like what, how does this, essentially how does this hit us today? How, how can it like cut into our soul and teach us and change us? Um, and so I still don't know. I have some guesses um, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But we're gonna start just trying to wrap our heads around what's here, um, what Matthew is, is doing in the passage and then we'll go from there. So verses 41 and 42 at the beginning. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He asked them a question, um, what do you think about the Messiah? Um, that would have been readily and often talked about in religious circles in particular. They often speculated and wondered and contemplated about who the Messiah was, what he'd be like, where would he come from, what would he do? Um, and so Jesus is kind of entering into an ongoing um, discussion. And he asks, whose son is the Messiah? Where's he gonna come from? Um, and they reply with a true, 
safe kind of stock answer. Um, and they say the Messiah is the son of David. So there are a number of kind of famous passages in the Old Testament in Second Samuel and Psalms and the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah that talk about the Messiah being a son of David. We're not gonna get into those, but they're there. Um, and they point to this uh, figure called the Messiah or the Lord's anointed one um, being from the line of David, being a descendant of King David. Again, not getting into those passages, but the Pharisees have spoken truthfully. They know, they know that the Messiah would come from the line of David, that he'd be a son of David. Um, and then Jesus responds in this way, verse 43. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So a couple of things here in these two verses. The first is a side note, but it is an amazing and important side note. Um, in one sentence, Jesus has, I think, established the like inspiration and authority, God-breathedness and the dual authorshipness of the Old Testament when he says, David speaking by the Spirit. Those are four, five huge words, meaning that in the Psalm that he's quoting, Jesus recognizes David's voice, like David wrote this, um, his human voice, and also recognizes that this is the Spirit of God speaking through David. Peter says it similarly in 2 Peter 2, 21. Um, For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. I'm not gonna stay on this point and do a whole message about this. We, could, we can do that another time. But in case you're ever wondering, like, does my Old Testament matter? It's kind of outdated. There's some stuff I don't like. There's some stuff that's confusing. I don't understand. I will just say it does matter. It is part of the whole canon of Scripture that God has spoken to us, to his church. Um, and Jesus has affirmed that here when he says, David, speaking by the Spirit. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 110, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord. For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This is a Psalm of David, meaning David you know, wrote it, spoke it. Um, and the first verse says in English, the first verse of Psalm 110, what we have here in, in Matthew, it says, the Lord said to my Lord. Um, Weird sentence, you're like, what does that mean? If you were here last week, um, uh, you'll remember, but I'll remind that most Hebrew people then and even now and people translating um, Bible don't speak the proper name of God, Yahweh. And instead, they will say or write the name Lord. Um, in your Bibles, um, if you're like looking at a written version, I don't know if it does this in digital versions, but um, they'll translate whenever Yahweh is in the text in Hebrew, they will write the word Lord in all caps. And so if you're reading your Bible and you see Lord with all caps, that's really Hebrew, um, Yahweh. Um, so that's what's happening here in Psalm 110. It's Yahweh, the Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D, said to my Lord, David speaking about his Lord. That's what's happening here. David is introducing the speech of Yahweh. He's saying, the Lord said to my Lord. So in this first verse of the Psalm, Yahweh is addressing someone who King David calls my Lord. 
Yahweh is talking to someone who David says is his Lord. And Yahweh is telling this Lord of David to sit at his, to sit at Yahweh's right hand. It's like the, the seat of power. It's not a demotion. That's like they, they share in power and authority. To sit at his right hand until he makes this Lord of David victorious over their enemies. So victorious that they could be like a stool for him to rest his feet on. Um, let's read the rest of the psalm just, just for fun so we can know the whole thing. I think Jesus and his um, audience, when they quote that first verse, they probably are thinking of the whole thing. And so let's think of the whole thing too. The Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord, Yahweh, will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You, speaking to this Lord of David, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way and so he will lift his head high. So this is a messianic psalm, a psalm about the Messiah. And the person who David calls my Lord, the one who Yahweh seats next to himself, the one who rules amidst his enemies, the one called a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, the one who executes judgment among the nations. This is the Messiah, the anointed servant of Yahweh. Jesus knows this. The Pharisees also know this psalm to be about the Messiah. And so then Jesus asks the question, what he's been leading to in verse 45. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Subjects, of a king would call their king Lord, and a child might call their father Lord. Um, a servant would call their master Lord. But the king of Israel, the conqueror of Goliath, the anointed leader of God's people, the one to whom Yahweh promised that his dynasty would last forever, King David would call no one Lord except Yahweh. Who else on earth could be David's master if he is the king? And so Jesus asks, if the Messiah is gonna be a son of David, how can David call this figure from Psalm 110, my Lord? How can he call him his Lord? How can this person simultaneously be someone from David's line and be the Messiah? And so the question that Jesus asks stumps the Pharisees. Um, we read in verse 46, no one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. It's kind of epic. No one wants to talk to you after you answer so forcefully. Um, but that question and the Pharisees kind of stepping off the stage until his arrest and his trial kind of marks the end of a scene. And it feels a little anticlimactic to us because Jesus' question isn't answered in the text. It's not kind of made explicit to us. Um, so we, like I said, we kind of stop at the like, ooh, he got him. But then we're like, why, why did he get him? <laughs> like, what did that even mean? Um, and so if we supply the answer that I think Jesus is going for, then I think it has like, well, there's the weight. There's like what's epic about this moment. So the question is, how can David call the Messiah of Psalm 110, the Lord, 
How can he call him Lord if the Messiah was supposed to be a son of David? The answer is because the Messiah is so much more than just a son of David. He's not less than that, but it is so much more than that. He is also the son of God. He's God in the flesh. And the Pharisees were expecting and looking for a human from David's line who would rescue them from their enemies, a political and military leader to deliver them. And Jesus definitely didn't look like that to them. He didn't seem like that to them. And so it was a problem of their, like, their expectations about the Messiah. They had limited it. It was a little bit, quite a bit narrow, forgetting the other passages in the Old Testament describing the Messiah that in addition to being from the line of David, he would also be a humble, suffering servant who would die for his people and forgive them of their sins. Um, the book of Romans, this is random. We're gonna turn there, Romans chapter one. Um, Chapter one, verses one through four. Really having a hard time finding Romans here. Don't worry, I know where it is. I promise, there. Um, It actually kind of summarizes um, this passage and the idea that we're going for here. So Romans one, one through four. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That describes who the Messiah is and this well-rounded understanding as for his earthly nature, yeah, he's from the line of David, but he was so much more than that. He was the Son of God, proved, proved his power when he was resurrected. Um, I think what Matthew is doing here in this kind of final scene showdown between Jesus and the Pharisees um, is showing us that the Pharisees don't really understand um, the identity of the Messiah and therefore can't recognize him when he's standing right in front of them. And so it's building this kind of narrative tension to what's coming next where Jesus is about to really speak some harsh and intense judgment on them in chapter 23 for their hypocrisy and for their sin. Um, And then eventually it leads to them having Jesus arrested and killed. And so I think, as much as my brain can, I think I've wrapped my head around like, okay, I see the question Jesus is asking and the answer that we're kind of supposed to like supply in there to understand the impact of what Jesus is trying to say, um, how it fits into the story of Matthew and captures the Pharisees' kind of refusal or inability to see Jesus as the Messiah. I understand Jesus' question. um, But my question is how is the Spirit of God um, speaking through these words still to us, to Valley Church? What are we meant to think on when we, when we read this passage more than being like, oh wow, Jesus got him, nice, way to go Jesus, or yeah, he is, he is the Messiah, I believe that. Good, fine things to think about. Um, but I think there's a little bit more to, to process. And uh, I found a, a quote that summarizes the passage and ends with this prompt that we're gonna um, kind of land on. So a Bible scholar, Leon Morris, he says, we should not think of this whole interaction, should not think of this as no more than an exercise in debating skills. There was a widespread idea that the Messiah was the son of David, and that meant for first century Jews that he would be someone in David's mold. 
They recalled that David had been a mighty warrior and that in his day, Israel's conquest had been extensive. But Jesus was not that sort of Messiah. For him, being Messiah meant being a teacher and being a redeemer, one who would die for others, not one who would head up great armies and slaughter people. By drawing attention to a defect in the way the Pharisees understood the relationship of David to David's son, Jesus was encouraging his hearers, and I think us today, encouraging his hearers to think again about what Messiah meant. I think that's what Jesus is encouraging us to think about. I think we're meant to ask ourselves, have I done, do I do, what the Pharisees did? Do I have expectations about what Jesus should be like, what he should do? And has that version of Jesus failed to do the things that I wanted him to do? And have, I, have we maybe become disappointed or disillusioned, maybe even lost some faith or some trust in him? The Pharisees and, and most others expected this epic royal leader, not a dirty stone worker from Galilee. They expected a military leader not a nonviolent, gentle teacher who would lay down his life. They thought the arrival of Messiah would mean immediate or at least imminent rescue from their oppressors, and all these unmet expectations caused them to miss Jesus. And I, I think that we do similar things. Even those of us who have met Jesus and know him as our Lord and our Messiah um, and can look back on this with, 2020 vision and go like, oh yeah, clearly they missed it and we see it now. I think we still do this. I think we expect Jesus that he should fix things inside of us and in our world and we expect him to do it within a time frame that makes sense to us. And then when he doesn't, we don't murder him like the Pharisees did, but we put up walls of doubt and anger and apathy. And maybe that's me, but I I know that I do that. And I don't go extreme with, like, with full rejection, but I'll hang out in like a, a long-term, low-grade negativity where I maybe couldn't even put it in those words, but I'm like, yeah, there were some expectations I had about life with Jesus that are not being met right now. Why hasn't Jesus fixed me yet? These are thoughts that we think, I, I thought the Messiah would, would save me and deliver me from my problems. Why do I still struggle with this sin and this temptation? Why do I battle anxiety and depression? Why are my relationships with certain people still so difficult? Why hasn't Jesus brought me the kind of friends and companionships I want? Why am I lonely? These are things that we can ask ourselves, things that I ask myself, that reveal what I think the Messiah should be doing in my life. Why hasn't Jesus fixed our world yet? Why is there so much brokenness and injustice? Why are there hungry children in the world? Why is there so much racism and prejudice and hate? Why do people kill each other? Why hasn't Jesus delivered our world from all of this evil and this brokenness that we see on the news and that we experience day to day? These are questions that we ask that reveal what we think our Messiah ought to be doing. And all these questions, whether we ask them explicitly or we just kind of think them internally, maybe you don't even put words to them, but they're like these raw emotions inside of you where you're like, you're brushing up against this unmet expectation without even knowing that you expected it. These are things that reveal what we think Jesus should be doing in our, in our world right now. 
And the hard thing is that um, Jesus does promise to make everything right, to make all things new, to renew you and me from the inside out and to renew this world, to eradicate sin. It just doesn't look like we want it to. It doesn't happen as fast as we want it to happen. Our internal renewal, that process, I don't know if you noticed, but it's rough. It is a battle. It is waging war against our enemy with the power of the Spirit, but we're waging war against our flesh. And our flesh, my flesh still wins a lot. I think that's why Paul laments in Romans, uh, why do I keep doing the things that I don't wanna do? That's, that's anguish that I resonate with on a deep level. It's not fun and it's not easy. It's painful and it's difficult. And when we lose our grounding on who Jesus is and what he does and doesn't promise about that process, we can get disillusioned about life with Jesus. The same can be said about the renewal of our world. Jesus is waging war against the spiritual forces of evil that are in the heavenly realms. We read that in Ephesians. And it is an ugly battle that Jesus will ultimately win, but there's like, there's shrapnel around us right now. We're in a war zone, whether we see it or not. The battle is in progress. Evil is fighting back against Jesus, which is why we see so much hate and violence and injustice and wickedness and sin in the world. And when we lose our grounding on who Jesus is and what he does and also doesn't promise, we can get disillusioned about how much God cares about us and our world. So, if you feel like you are in a spot where you are frustrated with the state of your life, your sin, your brokenness, and or the state of the world and the evil that abounds around us, what I wanna encourage you to do over maybe tonight and over this week is to try to spell out your thoughts. What, what do I think Messiah Jesus should be doing right now that he's not doing? Put words to these thoughts, especially if they've like, just feels like they, some, these emotions, they exist, those thoughts exist in my mind and body as emotions that I haven't spelled out yet. And maybe that's you too. So put words to them and speak them and pray them to Jesus. Why am I still like this? Why do I still do this? Why haven't you fixed this yet? Why is the world still broken in this way? Spell them out and say those things and speak them to your savior and your friend. Spend some time allowing yourself to feel all those things. And then the invitation I think is really simple, um, not easy but simple, and just ask Jesus to renew your trust in him. I'm not talking just about the initial trust we placed when we say, your Lord Jesus, will you forgive me? But the thing that we have to do every day where we butt up against our flesh and wickedness in the world and in us, and we have to every day say, Jesus, you are still king, you are still master, you are still Lord. So ask Jesus to help you trust him as your Messiah, as your savior, and that for our whole world too. So we're not just saying, Jesus, I, I know you forgive me of my sins, I trust you, I believe in you. We're saying, Jesus, I trust you to help me follow you. And by your grace to sometimes have victory over the brokenness in me. Even when it feels slow and difficult, I trust you. We can say things like, I know you've promised to renew the world and wipe away every tear. We can say that, but also would say, 
Jesus, I trust that you're doing this now, even when I can't see it, and that you will complete it at the exact right time. I can ask Jesus to give us patience, the same kind of patience that he has. Makes me think of Philippians 1.6. Um, it says that we can be confident that he who began a good work in us will carry it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus, is, Jesus has promised to deliver you ultimately and to rescue our world from Satan and sin and death. And it is a promise, but it is fulfilled slowly. It feels slow every day, and it can be painful, but it's happening. Um, and so I, I think that's what we should do is, is remember that. Let's pray. Jesus, I don't know um, what percentage of the people in this room of Valley Church are feeling um, burdened by, um, disillusioned by how we thought life with you should be versus how it actually is and how it feels right now. If anyone feels burdened or frustrated, disillusioned by how we wish the world was versus how, how we see it. I just ask that you, um, that your spirit would come into us and turn our eyes to you and direct our thoughts to you and renew our trust in you. Would you shape our thoughts? We thank you that we get to be honest and we don't have to be afraid of what we think or what we feel, but also would you Show us how to bring our thoughts to you and say you are Lord of our thoughts and Lord of our emotions and you have permission to correct them and to shift and change them and channel them. So would you do that for each of us, whether we came in feeling light and like we're doing okay or whether we feel like we're falling apart or whether we're thinking big picture about the world and we feel like it's falling apart. Would you bring us back to your feet to be a people that look to you and that trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.